Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to someone who has taken the reins of their industry horse and steered off the lame, tired path. Today's guest helps entrepreneurs of disruptive food brands break into Costco. In In today's consumer demanding market, the food brokerage model is just plain broke. And this guest says no more BS. Today, shrewd buyers and consumers demand elevated, unheard of product experiences. He's been listed as a consumer catalyst in Forbes magazine, and he's coming to us live today from Oregon. Please welcome our disruptor, founder and CEO of Launchpad, Jeremy Smith. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am I am doing great. It's uh as one would expect, raining in, in Portland area. So um, it's a normal day. I can see that behind you in your window, oh, <laughs> wet <yeah>. and cold. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 actually nice because I lived in California for a very long time and it used to rain there consistently during the rainy season. And for the past several years, we haven't gotten much rain. So it's nice to see the my old friend again. That's good. Well, Jeremy, you know, we haven't talked to disruptors yet in the food industry, right? And this is on everyone's mind. Everyone eats, right? right? So tell me from all the work that you have done and are doing with disruptors in this market, what is the main important ingredient for disruption? Well, it's it's not one single ingredient, but uh, or single uh, thing. It's usually a combination of things that um, catapults a brand uh, in the food and beverage industry to the top. Um, most of the time, it's not necessarily something that's unique. Um, a lot of times, it's taking what already exists in the marketplace and making it better. Um, reimagining it, kind of like what Apple does. You know, Steve Jobs said, Apple doesn't invent anything new. We just take what you're using and we make it better. And so whether it's someone like a Chobani, you know, they weren't the first ones with Greek yogurt in a cup, but their approach and their um, relationship that they developed with the consumer, a lot of times... um, especially brokers and uh, brands get very focused on buyers because the buyers are the first person that um, can either say yes or no to you really on the path to getting on the grocery shelf. But being on the grocery shelf means nothing if the consumer doesn't embrace you. So ultimately, the most important person in the marketplace is the consumer because the consumer will decide whether you're a disruptor or you're not. And um, sometimes that can come from uh, the story. Like if you look at the Shabani story, you, you had two things going on. You had a new you know, Greek yogurt company, but you also had the story of Hamdi, you know, um, an immigrant and um, an incredible story of how he took over the old craft plant in upstate New York. So there, there were a lot of things going for it that interested consumers. And, um, you know, Chobani was very receptive to listening to consumers. And they were also very aggressive in how they were going forward in the marketplace. Um, and so those, those things are what kind of changes things. I'll give you a, a, a simpler one. Um, years ago, uh, Costco sold two pound and three pound brownies and we were working with a bakery company and it was just when the low carb craze was hitting and we did, we made a recommendation to our client that 
they come up with something called the brownie bite, which would be a, a smaller brownie. Instead of going to Costco and saying, I'm going to bring you a three pound or a four pound or a five pound brownie, let's do something completely opposite. And because we saw the trends in the marketplace um, uh, switching uh, to low carb, we figured that people wouldn't want to, you know, go home and talk about eating a two or three pound brownie. But if they had a little bite, they probably might eat three or four pounds of it, but they'll feel better about it. And um, uh, it's just a, a different format um, than what was traditionally there. And it's not as, it's still, it still had all the indulgence of a regular brownie, but it wasn't as decadent and as rich as a, a brownie because you got a much smaller bite out of it. So yeah, it didn't seem so gluttonous. I remember brownie bites. It was perfect. Yeah, and it's still around today. You just don't hear about it because it's become such commonplace. And and that's really a lot of times what happens with disruption brands. But as as a category overall, what what's changed the most in the food and the beverage industry is that um, like companies like Kraft Heinz and Procter and Gamble used to own the shelves on in the grocery stores and by that I mean they could pretty much do whatever they wanted at a grocery store because the grocery store was so dependent but then all these smaller brands uh, came out in the market and thanks to retailers like Whole Foods which gave the smaller brands an opportunity to get on the shelf um, all of a sudden consumers began voting and saying you know what I'm not gonna buy Kraft Heinz Campbell's you know, or Campbell's soup anymore I'm going to buy this little company with this great story about uh, this female entrepreneur who's building, you know, this new soup empire. Um, but right now she's just 20 employees um, and it's an exciting story. And so people wanted to be part of that. And that's really, again, at the end of the day, it all goes back to consumers are really the disruptors because they vote with their pocketbook as to whether or not they're going to support a brand. And believe me, there's, if you go to a show like Expo West, which is the largest food show in the United States, 60 or 70% of the brands that launch there, you know, want to be disruptors, but most of them will never make it uh, very far. And so for all the stories that you hear about brands that are disrupting, a lot of the brands don't make it long term for whatever reasons. Uh, consumer adoption wasn't there. They couldn't get enough distribution. They ran out of money, things like that. But, um, but uh, consumer then, adoption tends to be the number one aspect from what you're saying. Like it is. And it's overlooked too much because it's it's much easier to quantify in a business plan. I'm going to go out to 10,000 grocery stores over the next five years. It's much harder uh, for people to talk about the consumer. And, and a lot of times you're getting entrepreneurs that are starting a business for their first time and they're, they've never you know, marketed or sold a food uh, or beverage brand. And you know, another example of, of this is kombucha as a category. No one knew what kombucha was. But so it, popular and, now. Yeah. And my doctor managed, even recommends I drink it. <laughs> yeah, but it's still a small portion of the overall beverage market, but it created an entirely different consumer that was looking for something very different. And you never know where that's going to come from. There was no one um, predicting um, the uh, rise of kombucha. And um, there were people that wrote about it once kombucha hit the market, but there wasn't anyone really writing articles and saying this is going to happen and blah, 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 blah. There were, you know, there were people been touting CBD, uh, you know, and, and derivatives of marijuana for quite some time, uh, both in the beverage space and in um, the edible space as being a huge uh, opportunity. The problem with it is the is that they're they're stuck because um, it might be legal in one state and not legal in, the, in another state, and so you can't drive a truck through Idaho with um, 
you know, uh, illegal product, even if it's legal in Oregon. So you, you know, so that's been legislation has been a, a, a barrier that a lot of these companies haven't gotten over with. So there's a lot of hype behind it. And there is promise um, as an ingredient. Um, there's a lot of things that can be done. But those are sometimes things that entrepreneurs don't anticipate. And it, it stunts the growth of uh, a product trying to enter the marketplace. Yeah, it sure does. And, you know, it all comes down to the consumers, really. I mean, you said something that is really important. I want to go back to that. Consumers are the real disruptors. And you're talking about the main ingredient. Yes, these disruptive entrepreneur, <laughs> entrepreneurs, they're making things better, but they are going at it differently today through the, con they're going at it from the ground up. It, they go through the consumers to the buyers, right? Yes. And, and, and the other thing that's changed is farmers markets have become a, a big source for consumers to go to on the weekends. And a lot of times that's the opportunity where a brand gets its first start. They're not in the supermarket yet. And so they're selling products um, on the, uh, you know, in the local uh, areas. And, you know, there's brands that do eight, 10 million a year at, at uh, farmers markets, but they're not in retail yet. So you don't hear, you don't hear about them. The, the other kind of disruption in the marketplace is uh, uh, e-commerce, um, you know, and, you know, during the pandemic, e-commerce has become you know, a major uh, force as far as consumers, um, you know, being able to find other uh, brands that they wouldn't find on the shelf. And there's some very high quality disruptive product brands that only sell direct to consumer. And, and they don't, they're not messing with the grocery channel and having to pay slotting fees and dealing with distributors that don't pay you for 90 to 120 days. They're dealing directly with Amazon and some other, uh, you know, online uh, platforms like Box, and um, it enables them to go to market in a different way that was not available 10 years ago. And so all of the retailers are, are having to compete with that now, and it's, it's, it's a whole other set of disruption, and there's different rules online. Some products don't really sell well, like fruits and vegetables, because people want to touch those. And frankly, you know, one of the things that people have misunderstood about grocery is that it's a social experience, just like a um, social media platform is. People like going into the store and talking to the butcher. People like going in and, you know, touching the fruit and seeing the beautiful colors so, so there is an experience, and that's why Costco's been so successful, is because you can go in there and get free free lunch and uh, enjoy the demos. And that's why people still to this day, as long as Costco's been in business, they line up uh, you know, for the doors to open and go in and experience new products there. And That's true. And, we like our free food, don't we? Our free samples. Yeah, well, you know, it gives you some excitement, you know, going to the store. <laughs> Um, usually yeah. a lot of times it's rare that both the husband and the wife really enjoy it. It's usually one or the other. Um, you know, a lot of times for some people, it's a pain in the ass having to go down to the supermarket again, but for other people, it's really social. You run into your friends and, and that's one of the things that really hurt the marketplace during the pandemic is because people changed their habits and they were more free flowing and going into the store and grabbing items and not looking at some of the emerging brands and just getting in and getting out is what we call it. Um, and so that, that changed, but now it's coming back and people are going back into the, the, the markets, but, um, you know, it's, well, how are these emerging brands able to get in front of their target audiences for those of us like myself, which I don't know what percentage I fit into, but I really like shopping online for my groceries now. Yeah, I, I'm the opposite. I still like going into the store and walking around and um, I don't talk to anybody there because I, 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 for me, it's not a social event. It's more 
looking at the brands and seeing what people are working on and doing. Um, well, this is where the online experience really needs to come up. You're talking about e-commerce being another disruptor, this whole online shopping experience through the grocery store. I mean, that's another avenue to even disrupt as far as the user experience, right? Yeah, I, I, I think there's some limitations, um, you know, like the Costco experience, which is, um, you know, you're, you're buying a much larger box. Those get really expensive to ship, um, you know, for light items and dry groceries online and e-commerce is fantastic. But uh, for fruits and vegetables and and other things, it's not quite it's not quite as effective. And if you're a new item that people haven't tasted, um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, trying it online can be more difficult. On the other hand, the advantage is that online people take the time to read more. So you can do your own sort of, I, I don't call it advertising, but promotion um, online. So you can go and you see a new mushroom product and you can read all about it because uh, Amazon has enough space on the internet in or you know, to set up a homepage and um, allow you to uh, display your product and explain what it is. And you, you don't really have that in the supermarket and you don't have that in other places. So I eventually think e-commerce is going to go down a bit and it's starting to, uh, for food, gro you know, just general groceries. I, you know, that, that's why Amazon bought Whole Foods is because. I they, do like going into Whole Foods. I do yeah. think it's interesting. I like seeing all the brands. I never think of produce as some, something new and emerging or emerging brands, but you know, there's a well, eye it is actually me. because there's there's now um, indoor uh, uh, growth of plant of plants that are being grown in um, you know heated warehouses uh, instead of out in the farm, and that's slowly beginning to take off now and there's more and more higher quality uh products that are being grown that are being grown indoors and the supermarkets are taking that in because it allows them first of all to grow locally and it allows them to get product year-round that you wouldn't get from a farm because you know there's only certain seasons when some of the uh produce can be grown due to weather you know you're not and growing locally is vitally important to consumers more and more these days. Yeah, I, you know, there's two factors there. There's the factor of, you know, I think that some people miss the days of, you know, 40 years ago when you could actually easily walk onto a farm and, and buy your food locally there. And, and I, I think the, the other aspect to it is carbon footprint, which you know, the more that can be done locally, and this is a big focus for Costco over the next several years, is to try and be able to bring the supply chain back to the U.S. as much as possible um, and, uh, uh, you know, buy more centralized local uh, brands so that a product that's made in Chicago isn't being shipped all over the country. Instead, they're buying, if, if the, the buying office is in, let's say, Washington, uh, Atlanta area, they'll buy from local vendors there more so that they don't have a truck going. It's only going 500 to 800 miles instead of 4,000 miles. That makes sense. I didn't know Costco was doing that. You know, speaking of Costco, you help these disruptive entrepreneurs get into Costco. And Correct. you have mentioned, you know, the whole broker model is broke, has been broke. Tell me the status quo of the challenges and what that model has been like for so many years and been so hard for emerging brands to get on the grocery shelves. Well, you know, I, I think it's it, a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that sometimes, you know, the, the good old boys network, uh, if you will, uh, worked for, you know, work 20 or 30 years ago, but it's different today in that buyers, um, are looking for, uh, different types of things from their brands. Um, 
you know, 30 years ago, they weren't asking a brand to talk to them about their sustainability plans. Um, they're looking more for that. And a lot of the brokers are used to sell, I call them PowerPoint pushers. And my comparison that I always use to tell people is, you know, these are the guys, you know, that go in and present and they read out of a PowerPoint. And, you know, to me, I've always felt like that would be as exciting as going to a New York play and on Broadway and seeing Denzel read from the script. You know, <laughs> I, you're not going to pay $120 a ticket to watch Denzel tell you, you know, read from the script and sit in a chair all night. And so um, uh, brokers, you know, are basically salespeople. Um, they rely on PowerPoint too much and they're not strategic. And, you know, one of the things, you know, it, it's not as difficult to get on the shelf as it is to stay on the shelf. And so strategically, you know, when your brand comes out and you introduce it, whenever you're first to market with something, if it takes off, especially at Costco, um, everybody copies it. And so you, you have to know that from day one. And a lot of the brokers aren't equipped for that. Um, they're, they're, you know, as I said, they're mostly salespeople. They're not strategy. And um, I know a lot of brokers uh, send me emails and posts on LinkedIn that, you know, that Jeremy Smith doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, I'm, I'm hearing these that means you do. <laughs> if they're saying it out loud, that means you do. What What is the good old boy network like? You said there are a lot of PowerPoint pushers, um, but you know, good old boy network implies that it's closed. It's not open to disruption. That typically is, you know, what it means in any industry. What What is that like? And how has that been so difficult for brands well i i think i think it is more to do with um uh, there's not a lot of options so um uh if you look at the there's like three really large brokers and over the years a lot of the brokers have gotten acquired the really good ones like my last company level one we got acquired so there's less and less brokers out there which for emerging brands you know, some brokers are really good at frozen. Some are really good at snacks. Not all of them are good at all of the categories. And so if you're a brand that is in the snack category and your broker that, that your buddy's recommending you to who's had success with them doesn't sell snacks, you're at a disadvantage. And so Right now, there's probably due to acquisition and brokers going out, some going out of business, there's, there's, there's so much capital flooding the marketplace from VC and angel investors for food and beverage entrepreneurs that there aren't enough really good high-end brokers left um, to go around to support all the brands. So um, the service is, is very different between many of the companies. And so there's not a ton of cash going into, you know, helping fund more brokerage firms. So the pace at which new brands uh, are, are um, entering the marketplace is much greater than the overall availability of um, options for brokerage firms. And, and it's been kind of done, you know, this this same way, like, you know, I, I get asked one question all the time that um, I can always tell the person doesn't really know what they're talking about. They'll always ask, um, and they, these are brands that are looking for brokers. So when they interview me, they'll ask me, do you have good relationships with the buyers? Well, first of all, no one's going to tell you the truth. Um, they're going to say, oh, yeah, we got great relationships with everybody. And then the brand finds out that that was bullshit. And so they shouldn't be asking that question. The question they should be asking is, how many SKUs do you have currently in Costco? What, you know, what brands do you represent? And, um, you know, how do you uh, strategically deal with the lifetime of a brand at Costco? There's other questions that you should be asking, but most brokers, um, 
aren't focused on those type of things. So the same questions get asked and answered over and over again, and it becomes stagnant. And it, you know, most like I was talking to a, a potential client uh, uh, earlier in the week, and this guy's got like a five or six million dollar business. He's been out there for three years, which is pretty good. And he's going direct to consumer and he wants to get into retail. He really doesn't have any idea on, you know, who's a good broker, who should I go with? And so there's not a lot of education from that standpoint. And a lot of brokers don't, you know, it's not like it's an industry where all, I mean, all the brokers know of each other, but it's not like we share information. And, and so to me, that reminds me of kind of I used to be in the advertising and graphic arts industry years ago. And with the printing companies, it was definitely a good old boys network where um, men dominated the field. And there's many more women now going that have gone into the brokerage business, just like there's many more women, even though it's harder for them to get funded than men, uh, because uh, VC firms are mostly male dominated organizations as well which is a whole nother discussion for another time. But <laughs> so, true. So when you see all these things, you know, a lot of them are old, you know, um, male dominated industries that have, you know, a lot of the businesses are family owned and that that has both pluses and, and minuses uh, uh, in the marketplace for people because, you know, family dynamics can be volatile at times and, um, uh, sometimes I'm professional, but, uh, uh, some of them work, some of them don't. So there, there's, there's a lot of things going on. And if you look at the food industry, the brands themselves have evolved much more quickly than the broker networks have to meet the needs. Like today we offer consulting. Most brokers don't offer consulting. So if somebody, if someone wants to sell directly to Costco, I can help them sell directly to Costco without a broker. I, I'm not here to say that I have all the answers. What, I, what I'm saying is there's other options. And I think at some point the broker network is going to start to fade away and more and more people will go directly. And there'll be more consultants that can help you get all of the expertise that you don't have. Costco's one of those um, uh, uh, retailers that it's it's a very different business than Whole Foods business, so it it takes a while to get up to speed, and so um, I think over time, as things begin to change, more people will go directly, and there'll be more people like me who have the expertise to help get brands up to speed, so that they can go to Costco directly. You know, that's really very interesting. I mean, that is the disruption. Anytime you have innovative disruption, you you interrupt a value network. Uh, this right. particular value network of this brokerage, which has been heavily in sa like a sales network, right? PowerPoint pushers. It's, it's going more to consultants that are real strategists. How, what is the difference between that, between really strategizing? What are the things that one really needs to do in order to help these entrepreneurs get on the shelves in Costco and stay there? Well, normally there are there are some brokers that still don't allow the brands to come to the meetings, um, and that to me is an immediate red flag that you should you should just hang up and say thank you very much for your time. I'll get back to you when I make my decision. Um, but uh, you know, for us and how we work, um, we believe in a lot of rehearsing uh, because. The Costco meetings can be pretty intense. They they ask. Uh, I I've had a client tell me once that he's had root canals that were more pleasant than a meeting with a Costco buyer, uh, just because <laughs> they ask questions that not even Whole Foods asks. And so, so they're very pointed very questions, very grilling. Yes. They're they're more about Costco is an operational sell, like. With Kroger's, there's stories about brokers. I go golfing with him. You won't hear that at Costco. Costco doesn't allow any of that. They cut out, Costco cuts out all the bullshit. It's not a traditional sales um, uh, call. It's more, you have to be more operationally ready to talk to Costco. Still doesn't mean you, you know, you do have to pitch your brand. 
You do have to explain things, but it's much more operational. You know, how many units are on a pallet? How many, you know, how many pallets are on a truck? All of these things. It's, it's a bit different. And then, you know, Costco will ask you things like, where does your salt come from that you're using? Um, are you, you know, what type of soil do you have? Things like that that can catch, you know, the average salesperson off guard if they're not prepared. And so we spend a lot of time preparing our clients. We, you know, we have a strict rule, never ask a question you don't already know the answer to, which always listen. Uh, if you ask an important question and the buyer doesn't uh, answer it right away, be okay, be comfortable in the silence and force the buyer to answer the question because you may find out something that you didn't anticipate. But too often salespeople, all they want to do is talk and hear themselves, you know, in the meeting and clients can, brands can be that way too. But we, we had a situation with a client where I just knew on his personality, this, he was the founder of the company that he was going to get clobbered in the meeting because, um, of the, he liked to talk a lot and he didn't like to listen a lot. And so, um, you know, we rehearsed over and over and over again. And then we went into the meeting and I told him, cause I knew this buyer and I knew how the buyer operated that she was going to go right to his PowerPoint presentation and go right to the pricing. If he handed her the PowerPoint presentation. So I said, don't give her the PowerPoint presentation until we're near the end of the meeting. And um, of course, the first thing he did was hand her the PowerPoint presentation and um, she went right, she tore right through it. All right, here's your offer. You're 40% too high. I mean, she just went on this whole rant. And um, so I had to figure out a way to stop it. I knew she was a uh, a big fan of um, the Boston Red Sox. So they were having a good year. So I immediately pivoted to the Red Sox and she said, yeah, you know, you're right. They're doing really well. And, and so I distracted her and then we got back on track and got focused again. But so the, the goal is to try and strategize about that and the psychological aspect of each buyer prior to the meeting as to where most brokers don't even think that way they'll say hey meet me at the costco office in livermore be there about 15 minutes before a meeting time and we'll go over everything we we don't work that way i that, think that's that, really important the psychological yeah. aspect of each buyer you remind me very much of uh, performance and entertainment in the sense that your rehearsals is really about showmanship, but also providing the audience with the data that they need psychologically in order to make the decisions that they need logically for the business. Well, well, you know, the, the other thing is we, we try and tone down the performance and try and do things like salespeople get into bad habits of, of, of and, and so do founders of saying, well, it's a great product. We go back to the old TV show Dragnet and with Joe Friday. And Just say, the facts, ma'am. Exactly. Bingo. You got <laughs> but it. you know, that is a type of showmanship, Jeremy. It, it's, it's a different, you're, you're speaking to the actual audience, right? That's what they want. Just the facts, ma'am. That's true. And, and, and Costco doesn't want to hear that you have a deal with Rachel Ray. They, everybody, there's no one who doesn't have a deal with Rachel Ray. She, promotes herself so much that I get surprised when I see a presentation without Rachel Ray in it, although it's calmed down lately. But um, so, so to us, we look at the meeting differently. It's not a sales pitch. We're going in to have a conversation with a buyer and talk about a little bit about our business, learn a little bit more about their business and see if we can come to a meeting of the minds and move forward. And we keep it really simple, um, but we've spent a lot of time doing the homework in advance so that when we come out on stage, if you will, um, we know we are driving the conversation to get to a means and a point where we want to be instead of having the buyer drive the conversation. They're in, they're, we're still inclusive and we want the buyer to express themselves 
But the goal is to be able to make sure that you make certain points about your brand that's going to appeal to the buyer and that you they when they walk when when you leave that meeting that that buyer understands your brand and what separates you from the competition and if you don't communicate that that's on you and 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 um, i've seen it happen with clients where like in kale you know the buyer just says well i buy kale at 28 cents an ounce why should i pay 70 cents for yours well you better know that answer before you go into the meeting because if you if you're a premium brand costco's goal is to get you at a great value which means lower price and um so but if you're not prepared on how to answer that you can't just say to them you know because costco buyers are incredibly smart like what happens sometimes is people will fall in the trap of going and say, well, we're 40% more because we use quinoa and quinoa is in an all-time price, you know, uh, all-time high price. Well, if it's only 2% of your product, that's bullshit. And the buyer will call you on that right in the middle of the meeting and say, well, it's your 15th ingredient in here. It can't be that much of the product. How much is, of the product, you know, is in there? As to where you might not encounter that same sort of, you know, uh, question from uh, Whole Foods or a Safeway buyer, because their goals are different. They want you to pay slotting fees and other stuff. So um, that's why I just stick to Costco because I, I um, Costco itself is a disruptor of everything, and so it's it's fun to work with a company um, as much as you know. It's not as much fun as going to a baseball game or football game or something like that. But there's still a little bit of fun uh, there. And most of the buyers are pretty nice. And, um, you know, they're they're just trying to uh, get what they need because everybody at the end of the day has to answer to a boss. And and so there's certain criteria that they have. But, you know, you know, it, it's it's amazing if you really look at the food industry, there's very few industries, maybe the automotive industry right now, but the food industry has been really disrupted over the last 10, 15 years, and it's continued now with plant-based. Um, but one of the things about plant-based that a lot of founders of, of brands in the plant-based uh, sector don't understand is there are, there are some unique circumstances that prevent um, vegan and vegetarian and plant-based products from being wildly successful. And that is the culture in the United States because meat proteins are such an important part of a lot of people's lives, especially in the South and in Texas, where people for 60, 70 years or 100 years have, you know, their July 4th parties with pork. And, you know, no one talks about hey, come on over, uh, we're having a July 4th barbecue, I want you to have a, a Beyond Burger. Or an Impossible Burger. Yeah. <laughs> we never and talked about that in Texas, it's a true. It, it, and, and so, but, but you gotta, but see, that's the thing, to truly be disruptive, you have to understand all of these things. You do, and you know, it goes back again to the story to the consumers. And where the consumers are. I just realized why for me, uh, you're so different um, and how you're different than, a, than the good old boy network. I mean, you're part of the purpose of your company and the brands that you represent is they have to be doing something for the greater good. They have to be helping yeah. the world make a better place. When you're talking about what you're doing with Costco and you're bringing these brands into Costco and you're making sure that they're communicating the data, the real data to the buyers, it's a no BS. It is for the greater good, not only for Costco, for your company, but also for the consumers and the brand. It's a, it's a win-win through all of that. And typically a good old boy network has not had that altruistic approach. Right. Well, you know, one of the things and the reason I won't represent energy brands anymore is I don't want to represent brands that um, basically are unhealthy. And the companies that make these products know that the products they're making are not healthy. They're not, they're not, um, 
it, it, making the world a better place. And um, there's so many options now for people that, you know, when I was a kid, I loved Mott's applesauce. When I was an adult, I figured out, you know, I learned about high fructose corn syrup and and my beloved Mott's had to, you know, I, I said, that I can't eat this anymore. I didn't know it had high fructose corn syrup because, you know, people are, consumers are so much better educated today. They're still confused because you can read on Monday that eggs are great. And on Friday, you can read in another publication that eggs are bad. And um, I love eggs, but I'm more selective about my eggs today. Like I only eat vital farms eggs right now because i like how you know they you know they raise um you know the the hens and all, all of that stuff and what they do and i like the taste of the eggs and you're um, making me hungry jeremy <laughs> <laughs> how yeah. do you handle brands that you know in every industry you could go in and disrupt and you're going to get copycatters um and then that brand or that food item becomes a commodity. And you said you go into this knowing this. Well, and you know that this is going to happen to you. So you, you've got to, you know, you got to remember that just because you had a meeting with that buyer doesn't, doesn't mean that six months from now after they've seen seven or 800 other um, uh, brands out there that they're going to remember everything that you just told them in that meeting six months ago. So um, you've got to constantly be reminding them of the values of your brand and not, you know, Pop Chips was a brand, um, the original owners of Pop Chips, Keith and Pat, that would go back, go into meetings, and one of the first things they would do was remind the buyers of the soul, what the soul of the brand is and the foundation and how that was impacting the marketplace. And it was a good reset because it then was driving home again, the messaging. And a lot of brands don't do that. They make the one major presentation and then next time we're going to show you our innovation, another overused word. And then it becomes features and benefits, which people really relate to the story and continue to relate to the story that never gets old. Yeah, the story doesn't get old as long as it's true. And as long as it's true. Aren't true <laughs> then you've got a different issue on your hands. Or if the company has had um, issues out in the marketplace that go against the, the, the values that they claim to have. Um, like I remember, and I'm not going to mention who the brand is, but um, the CEO of the company was talking about how important the environment was and everything. And then the buyer that was with me at the meeting then noticed when he was out in the parking lot that he was smoking cigarettes. And she said to me after the meeting, she said, you know, I don't believe a word he said. Here he is, Mr. Environment and all this other stuff, and he's out in the parking lot smoking cigarettes. If he really believes in the environment, um, I, you know, he shouldn't be smoking cigarettes. Now, you could say, oh, that's baloney, you know, blah, 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 blah. But in some ways it was true, and, and he wound I shared that information with him later and he wound up quitting smoking. But, um, you know, those are the things that, that buyers sometimes look at, you know, they're not necessarily, um, uh, always honest up front about certain things, but their values matter and, and, you know, they, they live it. But in, you know, at the end of the day though, people have to remember the system isn't fair. So, um, you know, you've you've got to constantly be focused on um, your relationships with your buyers, but most importantly, your relationships with the consumers, because the consumer at the end of the day has the decision making power that will ultimately decide your success, not the buyer, because consumers will tell the buyers you should start bringing in this brand. But um, the buyers can't force the consumer to buy the product. I'm so thankful that you keep bringing it back to the consumer because it really does matter to us. The consumers do drive the markets. You know, this reminds me of a brand that I saw recently. I just purchased them. I don't know if you know anything about them or if their story is true, but it rang true. It's a gluten-free um, product. I got the tortilla chips from Siete. And the reason why I bought it 
uh, was in the back of the bag. <laughs> I'm a sucker. There was a family picture and the caption said it was an old family picture. It's seven kids, with seven people in the family, right? five kids and mom and dad. And it's an embarrassing family picture. And I thought, let me read this story. And I found out one of the kids, her name was Veronica, had a lot of health problems and it was due to food allergies. So the entire family from Texas, Latino culture, um, had to give up a lot of the foods that they really loved, uh, grain, like certain grains, flours, things like that, tortillas. And so Veronica made it her mission to figure out how to create those foods from other sources, right? Other ingredients that would taste just as good. And when grandma said, these tortillas are better than my tortillas, the family knew they were onto something and they started this brand, right? And it's only been a few years, but they have great and, and they taste amazing, but I bought it because of that. And I love it because of that. And it tastes good. It's amazing. Right. But I bought it because of the story. Well, there you go. Um, you know, I, I know the brand, um, they seem to be good people. I don't know them that well. So, uh, I, I can't elaborate on that one, but late July is another, uh, company that makes a great tortilla chip and, um, they do really, you know, the company's been sold, but they're, you know, the ownership really cared about the environment and, and they, they walk the talk. Um, and, and a lot, you know, you hear these, uh, gluten-free stories a lot. The challenge with gluten-free is, um, obviously a person that has, uh, uh, gluten allergies or, uh, problems with consuming gluten is a serious problem. Um, but the problem is when you take gluten out of a lot of products, um, many of the companies add a ton of salt and sugar uh, to get them to taste good, and you have to be weary of that. Consumer Reports did a whole thing about um, how much how much more fat and um, salt and sugar people were getting in their breads, uh, gluten free breads versus a, you know a more traditional whole wheat, and so um, you always have to be conscious of that because. Sometimes you're solving one problem and creating another problem, but the challenge with gluten-free is making a product that tastes good. A tortilla chip's a little bit easier to make taste good because a lot of times you're just not eating the tortilla chip. You're eating a tortilla chip with salsa or another dip or something else. But like pizzas, gluten-free, a lot of them have been just a disaster for <laughs> I agree. that love pizza, you lose that experience. I, I had my gallbladder removed uh, many years ago, so I can't eat dairy anymore for some due to that. And it doesn't impact everybody the same way, but I didn't realize how rough it is when you um, have some of these um, issues until it happened to me. And then you have to start, you know, that's why I was happy when oat milk came out because it was close enough to regular milk. Although I don't, I don't, when I was a kid, I drank a lot of milk, but then I really learned in Europe about um, how bad regular milk is. And um, uh, I stopped drinking it and then um, picked up my vitamin D through other foods. But um, I, I like the fact that, you know, Chobani has a really great tasting oat milk. Oatly has a good one. Um, and there's several out there that are good now. And so we're getting more, again, through disruption, we're all getting more options and um, people are addressing smaller parts of the market that weren't being addressed before. And the culture in the United States, um, as, it's, as it's evolved and many, many immigrants have come here there's been a change in like LA to me and I used to, I love LA. I used to live there. The food was awful compared to New York where I came from. But today, um, LA has become this melting pot of culture from all over South America. And you've got Peruvian food. I mean, you've got incredible flavors and, and, um, 
you're starting to see that in many of the products that are coming out into the marketplace now that reflect the diversity of this country, which I always think diversity means, you know, um, that we're stronger because we're open to other things. And, and so, um, you know, you can only eat so many hamburgers and hot dogs in life and before the doctor tells you to stop eating them. Um, and, and so it's good to be able to try, you know, halal food, you know, that, um, people, you know, of Muslim descent, um, brought to this country and Afghan, Afghan food, you know, so we're not so closed minded. Like my kids, you know, when, when they were, uh, in high school, they're in their thirties now, but when they were in high school, they weren't always going to McDonald's like I was as a kid. They were going to noodle shops and tea shops. I'm like, you go to a tea shop after school to drink tea? Why don't you come home? I have some Lipton, Lipton in there. And they're like, <laughs> I would never, you know, they laugh at me, you know, with my brand. So, um, but you it know, is so it, different. It is so yeah, different, isn't it? Pho, you know, Speaking, so. yeah, pho. I love pho. You know, speaking of your kids, what were you like as a kid, Jeremy? Were you always a disruptor or did you seek out disruptors as friends? Um, I was always like my parents were very liberal hippies and I was a big supporter of Richard Nixon. And um, I, I went the other way. I was a big capitalist and I was always making money. And uh, my parents were shocked at how much money I was making as a kid doing different jobs and so I, I would say that um, I, I always, my dad would say, Jeremy's always had a big mouth and sometimes doesn't know when to uh, close it. So, um, but my mom was really like the first entrepreneur I met. And I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was when I was a kid. But I happened, she got us into this public school that Meadowbrook Junior High, and it was a, um, a very different type of school. They like we had a class in communism, uh, a class on the stock market, which is how I started investing when I was 13 years old. That's when I bought my first stock, and um, so I learned a lot of different things and um, became very entrepreneurial. Um, watching my mom um, after our parents got divorced, you know, trying to make extra money, starting her own businesses moving to Cal LA and getting into the concert business. And, you know, she, she let my brother and I run the, um, uh, concession stand at the concert hall. And she showed us, you know, how by adding more ice, you can increase your profits 30, 35% in a cup of, uh, uh, iced tea. And, and so, you know, or a, a beer, excuse me, a Coca-Cola or a seven up. And so, I had parents that taught us those things and, and I was also very well read. So I, I was constantly reading business magazines and, um, uh, I never really stopped reading to this day. So, um, I, I was kind of that way, you know, started, was always looking to make money and, and, um, find well, that was a real way. disruption from your, from your family and your background, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll tell you, disruption that hit me was when my friend, I had a very good, with my brother, snow blowing business, um, snow shoveling business in Boston. And uh, we lived there for a little while. And then um, my buddy's parents bought him a snow blower and he killed us. He killed our business because he, um, he would go out there with the snow blower and he could do 10 driveways to our one. <laughs> Damn so him. what I so what I did to beat him was because I had to figure out a way. Okay, here he's his parents bought him a snowblower. My parents wouldn't buy me a snowblower. Um, so my brother and I sat down and tried to figure out how we could be more competitive. And we put our good Yiddish cups on and started thinking and getting our minds going. And we, we one of the problems I noticed is that when every every time you you either use a snowblower or you plowed the driveway then the city plows would come back in and they would put this they'd hit the snow again and it would plow the driveway back in and they you know they'd have to do something so we would give we ran a promotion 
where we gave them one free driveway clearing. Um, uh, we'd come back after they got plowed back in, after the plows went down the streets, and we give them a free, and that we we dig them out again for free, and that won us our business back. Yeah, you dominated. That's badass. <laughs> yeah, so we beat the snowblower crew. So you like to read a lot. What are your crazy passions outside of work? Do you have um, any? I wouldn't say they're crazy. You know, some people, I'm not like, I, I don't, I don't like being in planes, so I don't jump out of them. Um, but I would say rescuing dogs and, and especially pit bulls. And um, I'm very involved with some pit bull organizations because it's a misunderstood breed. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I like that. And photography, I, I've always loved photography and design. So, um, originally coming from the advertising and design industry, I, I can't stand in, um, uh, packaging that's not designed properly or a car. Like I would never own a Tesla because you can go through a, go try this sometime, go onto a Tesla lot and you'll see that 40 or 50% of the cars, their panels are not lined up properly. And that would drive me nuts. And so, um, some people don't care. I have friends that buy Teslas, but for me, from a design perspective, if the window, I mean, I, the window doesn't roll up properly. Like I dig things like on a Porsche, the glass is actually shaped of the roof of a 911, the way it's cut. Most people don't notice that some people like my friends think I'm totally nuts. Yeah, but no, but it is, it's those little things and it is the design aspects, very artistic and aesthetic. Yeah, and I love German design, so it, it's um, you know it's 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 definitely a thing. We we only own German cars now, and uh, you know even my wife, you know, I got her an Audi, and and she just said, God, I can't believe the interior of this car. It's unbelievable. And so you know, um, and then you know, I'm always constantly going into grocery stores looking for new products. That's not crazy, but um, you know, it's. Uh, uh, you know, that's your life. I love time spending, you know, spending time with our two Frenchies, uh, French bulldogs and going on walks and talking with them. It's uh, my quiet time. It's meditative. And uh, I, I really, really enjoy that. And then that's hanging nice. out with friends when you can, of course. So you don't foster any pit bulls, but you definitely work with organizations to help Yes. And, and we, we had pit bulls and, uh, as you get older, you know, it's a dog that, you know, you, you, you gotta be able to handle, you know, a 60 to 70 pound dog that, you know, is pretty strong. So, um, and, and, you know, they're just, they're just so such a loving animal and, you know, that whole Michael Vick thing just drives me, drove me crazy the way you treated those dogs. But, you know, they are love really animals. loving animals. You're right. Yeah. So it's, it's all animals. I love, I, I love all animals except maybe rats. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeremy, how do people get a hold of you? Well, either on, I'm always on LinkedIn as, as most people know. And, um, uh, that's one way through our website or, um, they can just call me at six, five, zero, five, seven, six, eight, eight, oh, three. I take all calls unless you're trying to sell me software because I'm an Apple guy and none of, none of those high-end uh, uh, software systems that people try and sell you will work with it. So um, uh, don't bug me on that type of crap. Good, but they can call you to pick your brain and talk to you about disruption in the food Anything. industry. Anything. I will talk. You know, I, I learned a long time ago that um, even if the hot dog guy goes, hey, here, buddy, uh, I got something for you. I still, I listen to them. It drives my wife crazy. So, um, yes, I'm, and, and I, I don't have a problem giving people free advice if you're a food or beverage brand and you just want to, you know, you have a question that's been burning you, burning inside of you about, you know, how things are working with your current broker or, um, you know, how to approach Costco directly. I'm more than happy to talk to you at, at any time about your brand. Jeremy, thanks so much. That's very gracious. I really enjoyed this. We could go on and on about it, but I've learned a lot and I really hope our guests have too. Thank you. I've enjoyed this interview and uh, 
I think podcasts are really cool because it allows uh, uh, you to learn a lot about uh, uh, many things um, while you're driving your car instead of just listening to music. So That's right. Another disruption. Yes, another disruption. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, tell someone about this podcast. And thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.